How many of you, that's the first time you've seen it? How many of you still like it, even though it's the second or third time? (laughs) (laughs) I want to uh, um, uh, remind us that we're we're in a unique and short series right now called uh, Top 10 Ways Not to Save the World, or if you take a longer uh, uh, title, Top 10 Ways, Top 10 Things You Should Not Say or Do uh, to Save the World. We're looking at these themes from a book written by Hosanna King, who is a young Christian author, has worked in urban ministries. And, uh, you know, as we look around the things in the world, sometimes we can be uh, overwhelmed by uh, all of the things that somebody needs to fix. And it can make us feel sometimes a bit powerless. And so over these three weeks, this is week two, next week Pastor Joe will be uh, preaching Uh, We're looking at some things that you shouldn't be doing, which you can assume that the opposite of those things are what we should be doing as we look at how we are uh, instrumental in God's work as part of the church of Jesus Christ. Um, You know, sometimes we can be overwhelmed by how bad things are in, in the world right now. Um, you know, um, you know all these things. Inflation is at eight and a half percent, but back in 1920, inflation was 23 percent. It's been worse. Leaders of nations are this past week threatening nuclear war, but for those of us who are over the age of 50, we remember the drills at school where they told us to climb under the desk. And that would protect us from 300 kiloton thermonuclear weapons. Due to the rising home prices, home ownership is declining at its most significant rate in recent history. Some forecasters believe that home ownership in the United States will drop to 60%. However, in 1940, home ownership was 44%. So it is true and completely valid to recognize that things are tough today, but they've been tougher before. And our parents and our grandparents, all of them survived it, and we will too. And it's also to remember, important to remember, that I believe, and I believe that Scripture uh, uh, proclaims, that God is actively at work doing what God has always been doing, and that's saving the world. And as a church of Jesus Christ, the church is a part of His plan. You are a part of His plan. So it's a good thing that we're taking some time over these couple of weeks to look at some of the ways we get, well, in the way of God's saving the world. Now, not, not that anything hinders God, but over the three weeks, we're looking at a couple of ways and things that all of us do that we probably should stop doing. And today, we're going to take a quick trip through the book of Exodus. We're going to look at a couple of passage, passages in the book of Exodus, and we're going to look at the leadership of Moses in the book of Exodus, and three things that uh, Moses did and how we shouldn't be doing those things. So the first thing that uh, I I want to direct us, and I'm going to read these scriptures as we go through the message, but I want to give you, as we look at our first text today, our first point, 
What you need to do if you don't want to save the world is live to please people. How many of you know somebody? Now, that's a code way of saying how many of you, right? So that way you don't feel bad about it. You just happen to know somebody who lives to please other people. Anybody brave enough to raise their hand? Live to please people. Stop it. Okay, next point. No, I want to read this to you. Exodus chapter 3, verse 7. Here, here we go. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. This is when the Hebrew people are in bondage in Egypt, okay? And, and they're having a rough go of it under Pharaoh. I mean, he is a, he is a horrible taskmaster. <clears throat> and I have come down, the Lord says, to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So this is the, this is the descriptive words of the promised land, okay? Verse 11, so, so God is telling Moses these things. And, and, and God wants Moses to be the person who is the leader that leads these people out. Verse 11, Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Now, now here, what really begins to happen, and I won't read all of them, is as Moses begins to list a series of objections as to why he isn't the right person for the job. You ever done that? Hmm? Somebody asks you to do something, and you give all the reasons why you shouldn't be the person doing it. You're not the right person for the job. Here in verse 11, it's a general, well, who am I statement. Why would you pick me? Let's keep reading and see what else we can learn from Moses' motivation. And consequently, understand ourselves a little bit better, probably. Aren't you excited? I'm excited. Verse 12. He said, this is God, but I will be with you. God ever said that to you? And this shall be the sign for you, that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Well, that's pretty encouraging, isn't it? I mean, the God of the universe is with you, right? I mean, the God of the universe has said, don't worry about it. I'll be with you. I've got this. Just say yes. But no. Verse 13. Then Moses said to God, if, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they asked me, what's his name? What shall I say to them? And so God gives Moses his name. That's when we're first introduced to the name uh, Yahweh. I am who I am. Lots of sermons could be preached on how that could be interpreted. And so God gives him his name and he promises to be with him. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, because we're not done yet. Then Moses answered, but behold, they, the people, will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. 
And so God answers that objection. And he tells him of the great signs and the miracles that he'll let, he will give him to do, the staff uh, that will do great miracles uh, as he appears before uh, Pharaoh. Uh, all of these will be proofs that God has sent him. And then in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 10, Moses says to the Lord, Well, oh my Lord, I'm not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. That's basically saying, look, I couldn't talk before you started talking to me, and I definitely can't talk now. I'm just not the kind of guy that can get in front of people and talk. But I am slow of speech and of tongue, Moses says to God. And the Lord, again, says he will be with Moses and give him the words he needs to say. And then in verse 13, Moses says, he finally gets to the chase. Oh, Lord, please send someone else. That's right from the Bible, preach, uh, folks. Uh, every time I read that, I can't help uh, but, uh, but laugh at that. Oh, Lord, please, how many of us have said that in our prayer life? Every single one of us. Oh, Lord, please send someone else. I don't want to do this. Every single one of Moses' objections, every single one of these obje objections, if you pay attention to them, if you go back and relook at them, they're all veiled in this uncertainty of how folks will think of him. That his incompetency in these areas will cause folks to come at him negatively. You know, folks aren't going to follow me. Folks are going to criticize me. Folks aren't going to believe me. And what are the common words? If you look back in all of those objections, there's two common words. The word folks, okay, I might have folked that up a little bit. The people, folks, and me. That's the two common words in every single one of those objections. And oftentimes, it's the common element in our own objections when we are being called by God. I don't want to do this because other people aren't going to be nice to me. I'll never forget the first day of classes when I started my doctoral program. Uh, all of us are <clears throat> in this big room, and the director of the program gets up, and he's from North Carolina, so he had, a very, he had one of those gentle North Carolina accents. I'm going to try to give it to you. He said, this seminary is the best endowed seminary in the United States of America. That means we don't really need you, you students. So pay attention. Do what you're told, and don't be a problem. Okay, that didn't come out exactly how I meant it, but you can kind of get the idea. What he was basically saying is, is that their seminary had so much money that the students were an annoyance, that the students could stay home and the faculty would still get paid the same amount of money. There was no financial incentive for them to try to get us to learn. All of the incentive was on us. That is, I was feeling... It's a nice way, when, God, when folks go get their doctorate, they kind of get a little bit of an ego. So it's kind of nice when somebody says, ain't no room for egos around here. You see, he was translating that the most annoying thing about being a professor at this seminary was the students. I'm not really sure how you'd be a professor without students. But anyway, what was really interesting about that is, is it began to reveal to me something about our culture at large. We live in a service economy. I can remember my father complaining 
about this back in the 1970s and the 1980s as our nation was drawing down from a manufacturing economy and starting to really grow in the efforts of becoming a service economy. One of my favorite phrases that my dad would always say, and I got a lot of them. I'm going to write a book about my dad's favorite phrases someday. He would always say, I don't care that my boss drives a Cadillac, but by God, I better be able to drive a Chevrolet. And I think that's a very salty, appropriate wisdom. You know, aside from the growing disparity in wealth and class in our nation, there's also a new mindset that's taking over our nation. And what it is, it's the customer is always right. Every single one of us have probably said or thought that at one point or another. As a pastor, I have received emails where folks actually made the case that when they were upset about something that was going on here at the church, some of them don't do this, by the way. If you send me a nasty email, if you put this phrase in, I promise you I will just simply hit delete. And that will be bad for both of us, I have an idea. But they actually put this sentence, as a paying customer at this church, I don't like fill in the blank. Now, I know what they're trying to say, but it's, it is inherently uh, 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 revealing that we even look at our relationship with God and with his church as a paying customer. And what's the result of this kind of expectation that is commonplace in our culture? What is the result in every aspect of how you and I live our life, whether we're on the giving or the receiving end, and that is it's our job to please people. It's why so much money is spent by politicians, not to discern what is the right thing to do for the good of the country, but how those who are voting will like a particular decision, whether or not it's the right decision. And see, what's happened in our culture is slowly, without even us knowing about it, inundated with advertising about clothes and cars and political opinions, we all have bought into the lie that if we want to be accepted, that if we want to avoid being canceled, we need to please people. Right down to our opinions and our perspectives. We have gotten to a point where some of us won't even be honest about our opinions with our closest friends or neighbors because we're afraid of not pleasing people. Man, I got quiet in here. I'm stepping on my toes too. Even in the church, on issues of great importance like the sanctity of marriage, how to educate our children, even the way we proclaim the gospel, it has been said, don't you want to be on the right side of history? I've had colleagues say that to me. Don't you want to be on the right side of history? Tone down that kind of preaching because you need to be on the right side of history. I do not need to be on the right side of history. I need to be on the right side of God's Word. Well, how do I fix that, Pastor? Well, we're formed by what we focus on and by what we pay attention to. This isn't rocket science. If you're watching television more than you're reading Scripture, guess what's going to form you? If you're at sporting events more than you're at church, 
From 2019 to 2021, 26 million Americans said that they stopped reading Scripture. Since 2000, practicing Christians in our nations have in our nation has dropped from 45 percent in 2000 to 25 percent in 2019. That's before the pandemic. Now there's some good signs. Y'all been pl- praying for people to read their Bibles more. Well, your prayer was answered during the pandemic. 82% of people said that they read the Bible. I'm sorry. 82% of people said that they prayed every day during the pandemic. And there's a hunger out there for the Bible because since the pandemic, 55% of the nation think that the churches need to encourage daily Bible reading because that will positively impact our society. Are you ready for this? In 2020 alone, during the pandemic, 95 million Americans read the Bible for the first time ever. I'm just listing some of the good things the pandemic has done. On the secular side, psychological organizations are beginning to discover that people... That, that, that people who seek to please, they actually gave it a name, it's called sociotropy, accounts that, that this, this incessant need in our culture to please people is one of the leading causes for the rise of anxiety, depression, avoidant personality disorder, I'm not even sure what that is, borderline personality disorder, and codependency. Now look, lots of folks think that the next few years are going to be tough. But lots of folks also think that we're on the cusp of something great that God is doing in the world. God is always at work saving the world. The Hebrew people had been slaves for 430 years or so, give or take, but life was about to change for them. If you feel like you're in slavery right now, if you feel like you're in bondage, listen, listen to me. If you feel like, if your anxiety is rising because your understanding of persecution and hopelessness, let's see what Moses did. Point two, if you want to not save the world, then the best thing that we can do is only do what's been done. Exodus 14, 11, we're going to go to the next section of Exodus in this wonderful story of Moses. God uses Moses to lead the people out of Egypt, so they're out of Egypt. They're at the Red Sea. The Egyptian army is bearing down on them. Death looks imminent, okay? The, the, The army of Egypt is coming for them. They can see the dust and dirt from the chariot wheels, all right? Verse 11 of chapter 14. They, this is the people, them folks, they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone 
that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would be better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. I'm looking around the room and some of you are like, huh, is he reading that right? Yeah, I'm reading that exactly right. Basically what they're saying is, is we prefer slavery over freedom. We prefer darkness over light. It's been said that the biggest problem in leading people to Christ is that people generally prefer the darkness that they know to the light that they don't know. I think that's a profound statement. One of the worst calls that I hated when I was with the police department was domestic calls. These are situations generally where the husband is physically assaulting the wife. So many times it's really kind of hard to get out of those situations. More than one wife said to me, I'm stuck. I don't know where I could go or what I could do. And I'd show up again the next week or the next night, over and over and over again. Now, I don't know the answer to these things, and I'm grateful that some of you are working on these situations in people's real lives. But the same is true in the mundane parts of our lives, true. The Israelites were suffering, no doubt. They were hungry, they were alone, they were afraid, and their response was, we wish we were back in slavery. At least we had something to eat then. You see, that's the problem with freedom, is we don't know. Whether it's in the church, whether it's in business, whether it's in our marriages, whether it's in our neighborhoods, we keep doing the same thing over and over and over again and expecting a different result. Y'all know what that defines? Insanity. Insanity is doing the same thing over and over, but saying, this time, it'll be different. God has gifted each of us, and the work of identifying those gifts and what we should do with them is called discernment. And in the, chur- and, and in the church, discernment involves you, a mentor, and the whole church. Okay? I had Miss Elsie Dryden. She was born a month after the world was created. Okay, church? Little old lady in our church, she was my mentor. I didn't know she was my mentor, by the way, but she was my mentor. She was the matriarch of our little church that I grew up in, the one with the big red doors. And when I was about 10 or 11 years old, she came up to me and held out this finger that looked like God's finger, and she said, you're going to be a pastor someday, so be sure to get prepared appropriately. Pastor? Uh, uh, no, lady, I'm going to be a jet fighter in the United States Navy. Well, you see who won. <laughs> what is beyond your comfort zone? What is so big in your life that only God can accomplish it? Don't give in to the temptation to go back to Egypt, back to slavery, back into the same old way of doing things. Now, if you want to not save the world, then that's fine. Just do what you've always done. Oh, by the way, I have a third point for you. The third point is despise the bride, okay? If you don't want to save the world, despise the bride. Now let's jump to Exodus chapter 17. I'm almost done. Verse 2 and 3. Moses is frustrated at this point. By the way, you probably know this. God redeemed the, uh, the Hebrew people, uh, opened up the Red Sea. They went through, closed the Red Sea on the Egyptians. They were all drowned. God does that sort of thing over and over and over again. We still don't, we still don't trust him all the time. But now they've been walking around the wilderness for some time, and all they've done is complain. Y'all got people in your life that complain? 
They've been quarreling with each other. Y'all got people in your life that quarrel with each other? We do. We have small children. Verse 2 of chapter 17. Moses says to the people, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, y'all know this is coming. Why'd you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock by thirst? I believe I just would have walked away if I were Moses. I'd been done. Verse 4, so Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? I actually like the King James Version. The King James Version, Moses says, what am I supposed to do with your people? You see? They are almost ready to stone me, Moses says. Like that seminary professor, this whole leading a nation out of slavery thing, it'd be a whole lot easier if there weren't any people. Moses doesn't even seem to like the people here. It's easy to get upset with the church, especially when things change, particularly if there are things that you don't think need changing. I get it. When I visit my mother, every time I go to visit my mother, we go to her church if it's on a Sunday, and we sit down, and my mother always says, see, ain't nothing changed. Everything's just like it was. You left 50 years ago, which, by the way, I only left like 30 years ago, 35 years ago, not 50 years ago. I'm only 53, Mom. I didn't leave when I was four. And the thing is, is that it's completely different to me. I don't recognize any of it. The worship's different. The pastor's different. The, 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 the pictures that used to be on the wall behind the pulpit are gone and replaced by a screen. I don't even know the people. There's only like three people that are still going there that I remember. Classes have been moved. The hymnals are gone. I don't recognize anything. When I look around, I remember when I was a child, the congregation was predominantly white. Today, it's 25% African American. That's different, Mom, in a good way. There are young families there. There are babies crying. I mean, when I was a kid, the odor that I smelled when I walked into the church was Ben Gay. Now I smell baby powder. Seniors are sharing stories of when they were raising kids, old men and young men talking about town politics out in the front yard. And best of all, the 85-year-old preacher who can barely see or hear is still preaching the gospel. That's the only thing that's the same. Well, look what happens to Moses. He goes up to Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments, and while he's up there, the Israelites make a golden calf, and they start worshiping. God is ticked at this point. We finally got God mad. You want to make God mad? Start worshiping something else. Chapter 32, verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you, Moses, God says to Moses. Now, in any of us, if we were in this situation, we'd say, finally, God, you've seen my wisdom. And now, not only that, but God is saying, I'm going to forget all these tribes, and I'm going to make your descendants a great nation. How many of us wouldn't jump at that chance? God is finally convinced that Moses has been innocent. God is finally convinced that the Hebrew people are a pain in the neck and need to be destroyed. And God's going to make Moses' family a great nation. But what does Moses do? Chapter 32, verses, verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, 
Why does your wrath burn against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did that God bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. Do you know what Moses has done here? These people who have been nothing but hateful to him, he has put his face in the face of Almighty God and say, you can't kill these people. Think about what everybody would say about you. Think about your promise. Don't forget you made a promise. You're not going to break your promise. Verse 14, and the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Listen, if you told me that you like me, I'm okay, but you can't stand my wife, that's not going to sit well with me. So why would we say to God, hey God, I'm good with you, but your bride, the church, can't stand her. And I hear people say that to me out in the public all the time. I like Jesus, but I hate the church. Yeah, won't you say, I like you, like, but I hate Shauna, and see how far this gets you. Moses was willing to risk everything to defend God's bride, the nation of Israel. And you and I, brothers and sisters, this thing called the church isn't our idea, it's God's idea, it's Jesus. You and I are his bride. And if you're in Christ, then you're in the church. You're his bride. And sometimes, sometimes it's not always easy. But you and we 